So lately, now that I've had more ways to, to track what we're doing, I've become interested in seeing where is our investment. Like we think we're investing in one way, and we may be investing our time a different way, and so it's helping me understand that. And that's really, if you think about, you know, the first level is of managing this is just when is a project going to get done, and can I actually predict that? Once you're kind of past that, you. You go into well, where are we investing, and where should we be investing, and how are we spending our time? Have you ever wondered how your dev team ranks in terms of productivity, speed, and business impact? With Linear B's new engineering benchmarks report, you can find out. The product of comprehensively analyzing the work of almost 2,000 dev teams at close to 1 million branches, the 2022 engineering benchmarks report is the first ever look at what performance metrics make engineering orgs elite, average, or underperforming. Best of all. If you want your dev team's number to go from average to elite on any of the benchmarks, the report also provides concrete guidance on the behaviors, tools, and processes you need to get there. To explore the report in full, visit linearb.io/benchmarks or click the link in the show notes of this episode. Hey, what's up, everyone? Welcome to Dev Interrupted. I'm your host Dan Lines, and today I'm joined by Mike Gordon, VP of Engineering at Hippo Insurance. Now, for those of you who don't know, Hippo reached unicorn status in 2020 and has really established itself as an innovator within the insurance industry. But personally, I know Mike because he is a customer of Linear B and a really smart dude and someone I just enjoy speaking with. So, Mike, thanks so much for joining today. Yeah, thanks, Dan. It's great to join you. Awesome to have you on the show. We're going to dive into all the great things that you're doing at Hippo what you're doing with your engineering team, why it's so successful, things like that. But first off, I want to give our audience a chance to know you a little bit better. You graduated from West Point and spent about five years or so in the U.S. Army. How did you find your way to becoming a VP of engineering at this unicorn uh, startup? What was your career path like? Yeah, so it was, it was very gradual. After the Army, I left and, and worked for Northrop Grumman in Los Angeles. I was at Northrop for a few years, working on, on things that were pretty close to what I was doing in the Army with networking and, and communications. And then I jumped over, actually, to, to Cedars-Sinai and led the, the web application development team that built most of the internal business applications and then managed the internal and external websites for Cedars. So I, I kind of jumped from environment to environment gradually. And yeah. then after Cedars, Google came calling, moved up to Northern California to, to work for Google and was there for almost nine years. And then went to look for something different. And, and Hippo was here as a, a unicorn not too far away and had a lot of interesting problems to solve and an engineering team to build. So I, I came to Hippo. So I kind of, I've kind of went step by step along the way for a few years at every step, you know, going all the way from the culture in the army that's very regimented through Google that's very not, and then finally ended up at a, a startup. Yeah, that's kind of quite the differences from military type, I assume, military type behaviors to Google, which is a little probably more open. What did you learn? You were at uh, Google like eight, nine years. You're saying, what did you learn from your time at Google before you joined Hippo? Yeah, one of the things I, I learned from Google was was really how is the best way to engineer something? And and Google really had 
hundreds and thousands of engineers working thousands of hours to build systems that that showed well what does a world-class distributed system look like and what does resilience look like and if you were to do deployments a certain way what is you know what do the experts do and so i learned a lot there i learned a lot about distributed systems and scale and how to manage a release process and how to deploy in an incremental fashion and and how to deal with worldwide availability so so there were a lot of different lessons I learned at Google. And, and I was working both on the front end and the back end, you know, all the way from a capacity of, of writing code to managing teams that, that ended up growing pretty large. And so got a lot of, of different experience at the company. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I've talked to a bunch of people that are either at Google or kind of use Google as that stepping stone to launch an even more successful career. And everybody brings up the same things, things around distributed systems, scale, usually scaling challenges. So, you know, for anyone listening, obviously heading over to Google before you make your next career move, uh, move is always like a really nice launching pad as it was here for Mike. I'm going to move us into our first topic. It's around the hidden benefits of mastering your metrics and kind of like the dessert of this conversation. You know, Mike, what happens when you get the metrics you want? You mentioned before the show, you're talking to uh, one of our producers, that one of the best things about improving everything around metrics is that you get to retire dumb stuff. Can you tell us what does that mean? Yeah, so the the goal really that I have is you you want to be able to spend as little time as possible to know know what's going on. You know, as as a manager, I want to know what are we doing? When's it going to be done? How long is it going to take? And are we as productive now as as we used to be? And and so, you know, you could answer that by having long meetings and and actually asking and polling all of the managers and having daily stand-ups and uh, tracking things in spreadsheets manually. And and years and years ago it used to look like that. But what I really aim to do is is I want to have a, a lot of this automated and as as unintrusive as possible for our different teams. You know, you you want to be able to establish a process, but not put too much process in where people are spending all this time doing status reports and and meetings and and spreadsheets. You what I want instead is the metrics to show up for me, and with without people having to knowingly and intentionally prepare them. I remember those style meetings from back in the day they're not very fun i think for either party you as you know a vp of engineering having to ask all of these polling questions what's your status on this where are you on that it's also not fun for developers by any means just it's almost like a it almost feels like a lack of trust or something like that when you have to have those status meetings you know what i mean it does, especially for the developer who feels like they're yeah. being interrogated about what they're doing. And and by being able to have status baked into our, our process, you know, they don't feel like they're being interrogated and I still get the, the visual view of what I want from the team. So have you been able to completely replace that type of meeting or kind of where, where are you at with status and rapport or information gathering? Yeah, I'm I'm pretty far along. I wouldn't say completely replaced, but for example, for for a very long time, even at Hippo, I was asking for a, a PPP report, which is plans, progress, and problems. And 
So I would have the managers in the team send three bullet points for each and say, you know, what are you working on? What are the things you're going to be working on? And what are the issues you're having with those? And recently I've, I've stopped doing that because instead what I've, I've been doing is turning it into an, an every two week project review. And so I've actually created a dashboard of burnup charts. And instead of asking teams for, for specifics, I've been saying everything you do, have an epic for it. And we use Jira. And so have an epic for every phase of the project, make sure that your tasks are broken down evenly into those epics, and then I can get a burn-up chart. And so when when we have our every two-week project review, what I do is I review, say, the top 15 projects in our platform group. We're composed of maybe seven or eight teams, and so we really care about the top 15. Instead of diving deep into every one of those projects, we'll first look at the the burnup chart and we can quickly identify projects that are going well and, and problem projects. And so we spend more time diving into the ones that we want to know more about than than just continually updating with a status for the ones that that are going okay. What that's done is it's eliminated the most of the PPP reporting. And while we still have an every two week meeting, we're really talking about, well, what do we need to do to make this project better or fix dependencies and really talking about actionable work instead of communicating status. And so having some of the automated burn-up charts and having teams have a standard in how they plan their work has made it easier for them and and easier for me. And having an every two-week meeting is much less burdensome than having a a, a twice-a-week, one-hour excruciating pain fest. Yeah, nobody likes the, uh, the pain fest. That's a, that sounds like the least fun meeting possible, but I think everyone knows exactly what you mean by that. You mentioned some of the, or at least one behavior that you get to focus more time on actually solving problems or talk about the real stuff. Have you noticed any other behaviors when you're able to get your, I guess, your metrics in place, any changes of how you're able to interact with your or teammates or direct reports or how they feel about it? Yeah, I've seen circumstantial evidence on on some of it. So I think teams have started to take more seriously the idea of if we plan our work and we plan our work evenly and we have an epic for for all of our tickets and and go into a sprint knowing this, that we're actually going to have a lot less time having to worry about status. And so it's it's worth the time up front for them to do that. And so I'm I'm seeing people recognize that that this has actually saved them time in the long run. And so while it feels like a little more time up front and maybe a little more what you call process up front, it saved the teams a lot of time. So I've seen that. And then I've seen teams who who have gotten into the habit of doing estimated story points and and really having a cadence of backlog grooming and and signing on to that, that even without the managers being involved, they've just decided to continue doing that on their own. We have we have one manager right now. He's on paternity leave. He manages a, a large team and a small team, and both teams are, are kind of operating at their own pace, even without him around. Very interesting. Actually, you know, one of the things that Linear B helps with, we call data integrity, which kind of means is everything that you're working on have a ticket or an epic? Is it linked to a PR, that type of stuff? We do it in an automated way through Slack or MS Team bots. And what you mentioned, usually what I see in organizations that kind of have a poor data integrity, you know, their JIRA is all out of shape is 
the engineers or the team leaders don't see any benefit, for example, what you said, to create an epic or have their work in an epic. There's no time back for it. There's no reason to do it. And for you, what you're saying is as you've kind of given that reason, I think you've seen the data integrity naturally increase because the developers and the team leaders are actually getting that time back. And that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, we have. And and we've added some gentle reminders too. For example, in, in GitHub, we have a, a Git hook for certain types of, of PRs that that say, okay, it needs to have a ticket number in the title. And so we automatically link the, link the ticket to the PR if the branch has the ticket number and the, the title name, and we've standardized on that. And it was a little bit of work at first to, to get people to do, but now it's just a habit of everyone and it works really well. Or, or when we do a production patch, for example, there, there's a, a parser that requires us to have the link to the the develop branch PR and the staging branch PR. And if they're not there, then it, it won't get approved or merged. And, and since we have that automation, we've been very consistent about having those and really having the traceability we want with really not much extra effort on, on people's part. That is super important and uh, really glad to hear that you have that automated. I um, want to ask you, so it sounds like you've definitely gotten your you know, some of your, let's call it metrics foundation in place, less and less status meetings or those very painful meetings. Have you found that it has allowed you to ship more predictably or do what you say you're going to do on time or ship faster? It was certainly more predictably it's, it's allowed us to do. I'm, I know I look at the burnup charts of our different projects and I see pretty consistent march toward completion on, on a lot of that. And so I do see some some predictability with the way we're able to deliver. And then I've seen teams that have really matured, probably partly because the software itself has matured too, in in that the team has has been able to kind of work faster and more predictability with less stress on them. Absolutely. And predictability is such an important metric or one of the, at least my favorite metrics for engineering organizations. Are you going to do what you say you're going to do. That's kind of that trust between engineering and back to the business. So I'm very happy to hear that your predictability is increasing. I have an interesting note here. You said that you've reduced something that you call extreme FaceTime. What does that mean and what does it look like? Yeah, so when when I say extreme FaceTime, it's having that daily status meeting and, you know, not especially as we've went all remote with zoom you know the the facetime has at least felt more extreme because now you're on the headphones all day and now you have an extra 15 or 20 minute status meeting in the morning and it's it's just a lot and so we've we've reduced that significantly and reduced the number of of meetings to just convey status yeah it's almost like back in the day before you know, working remote or everybody was remote in Zoom. Yeah, you would have those painful meetings or the pain fest. It's even worse when you're on Zoom and getting asked for a status update. That's like maybe the most, like, I don't know, insulting thing you can do to a developer these days. <laughs> yeah. 
and and it's hard because you're on Zoom most of the day. Yeah. And especially as a manager, all you know, all the managers spend a lot of time on Zoom, and and it's it's tiring, and it it takes more work to to be able to maintain the conversation and presence on Zoom than it does in person. You know, as we've started going back hybrid in person in the office, it's been so much easier meeting people in person and getting a, a five minute conversation done in five minutes instead of twenty five. Yeah, absolutely. I also have a note here. You have a you have a funny story about a time when you worked at a company where someone had the title of scheduler whose entire job was to work with engineering managers to write a Microsoft project schedule and a list of dependencies. What is up with that? Why was that role necessary? Give us some background there. Yeah, so so this was a whole thing, especially when I worked at, at Northrop Grumman. And I mean, it kind of came from old defense where they'd build fighter planes and you have to have every single part delivered on time. And so, you know, I guess back in the 50s and 60s, you'd have big rooms with big project schedules on the walls and, and everything was a very manual process. But still in, in planning our software, we had someone, their title was scheduler. We would get together and build our own scheduler and then he'd import the files together into a master schedule. And everyone would sit in a room around looking at the the network of the schedule at Gantt charts and saying, well, this dependency folds into that dependency, folds into this dependency. and and it was an amazing amount of time that we would spend just talking about schedules and project schedules and be, be using Microsoft Project. And and it's funny that someone had this job of of scheduler, like that was their their purpose nine to five every day was to fire up Microsoft Project and then pull in schedules and, and look at progress. And it's it's so much different now in terms of efficiency with doing that in, you know, sometimes we will make a schedule, but it's kind of a quick exercise and it's really just an intermediate step to maybe load Jira with an Epic and, and eight or nine issues. And then all of the tracking after that's automated. So, so we've replaced the schedule over here with, with automation that can let us see a graph of how soon we're getting things done by distributing the tasks of, of creating your different tasks and stories in Jira, we've really been able to offload the work where you'd have this this scheduler. And you can imagine a, a bunch of managers in a room, you know, all smoking a cigarette, trying to create a, a scheduler. At least in my mind, that's what that's what it's it's like by having that title of scheduler that we've been able to eliminate. Yeah, it sounds sounds pretty crazy. And especially at the pace that software development moves in modern times, like trying to predict the future of where a dependency will happen at one point and all of that. Yeah, just, the scheduler just sounds insane. But thank you for sharing that little anecdote. Yeah, it, it is. And and I found that by getting to a, a metric of a burn-up chart, you you get to see the the scope that gets increased as well. So, I mean, that's that's the thing that you would try to avoid by creating a master schedule is you try and plan and and scenario out every single piece of scope that you'd have for your project. But, but now, um, you, as you discover new things to do on, on the teams, you, you just create extra tickets and then those extra tickets sometimes get translated into story points and effort. And you can kind of see the scope increasing as the completion increases. And so it's, it's been easier to get a feel through these automated means on, on how, how projects are going and how much more work do you have to do than you originally thought you you had to do? I think most people have heard of burn down charts. Is there a difference with the burn up charts or what do you like about that looking at a project in that way? 
the thing I really like is seeing that scope increase. Because with a burn down chart, you have a certain amount of scope and then you start with that scope and then you see the scope burn down to zero. And with with a burn up chart, you're actually allowing for additional scope to be added. And so that's why that's why they call it a, a burn up because you see the top line move as well as the bottom line. And and it helps to see how many surprises we had on a project, for example. And you'll notice that every project, I have a, a big dashboard in Linear B of all the, the projects that I care that much about. And so all of them have a, have a line on the top line that's increasing. So every single project that we do in software has scope increases because we we can't anticipate every single thing that we're going to need to do from day one. And so that's why I, I like the burn up chart to understand not only how the scope is increasing, but how quickly it's increasing and maybe how much off were our estimates at the beginning of the project by by seeing the slope of that line. And that was something I worked with a project manager at Google who was really good. And he said, well, you know, why burn down charts? Why don't you try burn up charts? And I actually got a lot of value out of that. And so so I kept, you know, using that as the guide for what I was tracking. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, we have that in our project delivery tracker, which was one of my favorite views in the product. And we certainly track, you know, work that's added. That's what you can see in a burn up chart added into an iteration or later on within the project. And like you say, every project you're going to have added work. That's just normal, right? You're going to have it. But there's a certain threshold where, okay, you can say to yourself, there's too much going on here. There's too much added scope. There's something probably that needs to be uncovered or, or we're not seeing. And usually what happens for teams that I've been working with that have a lot of that, you can call it scope creep or added work. It hurts with the predictability. That's where it's really like at yeah. the end of the day, if you're working with, I don't know, you might be working with a new team leader and you're saying, hey, are you sure you're going to deliver this on time? The data is kind of showing there's a lot of unplanned work here. You're, that's how I know that the predictability is going to be off. How do, how do you analyze that added work or like, you know, how do you use it for the scope increase? Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's not always predictability. What it could also mean is that we, we didn't have a good set of scope requirements at the beginning. So it might not be just the software team's ability to deliver that's affecting that. It, it could also be that we found something out we didn't expect to, or the requirements changed mid-project, which which often happens to us because software is not exactly like building a building. You know, a building, you can't take the third floor and put it on the seventh floor. But in software, you can take the third floor and put it on the seventh floor. And so that scope creep and change, you know, people see software projects and they say, well, we can change anything around anyway. And so it's not a big deal to add this piece of scope into the requirements. And sometimes that happens. Uh, so so we can use that as an indicator too. I'd say it's it's hard for me to distinguish what's, what's scope creep between added requirements versus maybe the team not estimating. But that would be an interesting metric long-term to try and look at. Well, you, you mentioned earlier, okay, if we all have, we're all looking at the same set of metrics, we have a project board or we have a project delivery tracker that kind of shows us, okay, something is happening here. A lot of work is getting added. Now we can use our time to have that conversation. We don't need the status update anymore. You can figure it out. Is it that, you know, we foundationally don't really know what we're doing with this project, more things need to be defined, or is maybe something happening from an outside source? You can actually sit down and like, 
that's a good conversation to have with a team leader, even over Zoom. Yeah, it is. Yeah, even if it's on Zoom. You know, so we've talked a little bit here about kind of establishing some of the baseline metrics or, you know, getting your projects in place and some burn up uh, charts, something that you've mentioned a, a few times here, but I have it written down specifically. You've said that you really want to know when you're working with a team or a team leader, kind of like, what are you working on and when it's going to be done? Maybe it's straightforward, but what do you mean by that? And why, why is that so important to you? Why do you need that information? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of reasons this, it's important to me. What I've, what I found in, in having this seven or, or eight teams is I'm not going to be able to know everything that goes on all at once. And so I, I want to be able to go somewhere to tell that to me because otherwise everyone would have, have to write it down. So I think that one of the big important things to me is, is knowing when something's going to be done, because I have to be able to tell either both our, our product engineering organization or, or even our, our business stakeholders, what can we do next and when can we get that done? I mean, they're, they're always interested in, in getting a lot done and they have a lot of priorities. And Hippo, as a, as a company, we also have a much larger list of things we could do that can help the business than we could possibly do. So I think I, I need to be able to say, what could we do next and, and when could we do it? And so what I'm trying to, to answer that question, I need to know, well, what are we working on now? And when is that going to be done? And, and I prefer not to ping people all the time about that. You know, that's, that can get annoying as well. And so by having some metrics that tell me that, I can get an estimate without bothering them, you know, most of the time. So that's why those two things are pretty important to me in understanding when we're going to be done. I'd also like to know team productivity and just to know, is is a team trending more productive or less productive? Maybe something we're doing organizationally isn't working and we should be changing our organization or we'd be changing the way we work or we tried to introduce a new technology and it really was a bad idea. And by being able to see the trend and knowing as we go from project to project that we're able to predict when it's done, it can also tell me that maybe something else is wrong that the team has no control over. Totally makes sense to me. And I, I remember the days, again, of being on both sides of the coin, kind of that manager side where you're always wanting to get this information because you have to communicate to the business or a VP of product what you can do next and when. And then on the other side, it's always the worst as the team leader or the developer trying to commute, like asking that. It's basically a status update again, over and over. What tools are you using to answer those questions? What do you have in your tool belt today? Yeah. So we use Jira for our task management. That's a pretty standard tool for us to be able to plan and divide our work. It's not a great project planning tool, though. I mean, it's possible to add dependencies and, and make a schedule, but it's, it's actually, we find it kind of difficult to do. But that's kind of the base tool we have because that manages the items that we, we create that say, what are we doing to finish this project? And what are each of the steps we need to do? We use GitHub as well. So we use that for source control. We have integrations between Jira and GitHub so that when we merge a, a PR, it gets marked in the ticket and, and moves the Jira ticket to another state so that, say, QA can take it. So those two tools work together, and we've put pretty standard automation in place between them to, to be able to use those. We also use Linear B that's connected to both of those to, to track engineering productivity, project productivity, 
certain engineering metrics that are interesting to us. And then the out-of-band stuff we do, we do do quarterly OKRs, and and it's something that I, I think is a good idea for a team to do, even if you don't work in quarters. You know, at Hippo, we work in two-week increments, and we can get a lot done in two weeks, and, and a quarter is, is still almost forever for us. But it gives us an idea of what we're planning and and a roadmap and something for us to to aspire to. But we're also able to measure quarter by quarter what we get done. And so now I have six or seven straight quarters of um, OKR scoring and metrics to know, well, are we achieving the big things that we're attempting? So this is kind of above the project level and saying, well, we have some big initiatives. Do we think we can get those done? Those are the biggest tools that that we're using right now to to measure productivity. Very nice. And you know, you brought up OKR, so OKR, it's objectives and key results, you know, kind of a, a standard performance indicators for that a lot of the businesses are using. I have seen in the past that sometimes it has been difficult for engineering teams or in engineering leaders to pick the right OKRs. What were you doing with your OKRs? Is it all around feature delivery or like very, very high, high level? How do you choose your objectives? It's a combination of a few things. I think, I think one in, in our platform, we've defined six or seven big objectives, things we want to hit. And then from that, it's, it's kind of an exercise of both top down and bottom up. So there's certain things we need to hit from my view. And then I also, I want teams to meet us in the middle as well and to they understand, say, what tech debt is really bothering them or that really needs to be overcome or what's the big thing that needs to be done for them. And so we'll also ask for bottom-up OKRs and then make a combination of, of the two of what we end up settling on when we do quarterly planning. So I think that's one of the things. And then feature development versus infrastructure. As a platform team, we spend a significant part of our time on on infrastructure, but we try and we try and reserve as much time as possible to support product development. You know, whether that's directly by building out APIs or whether it's indirectly by supporting the product engineering team. One of our big goals is that as much as much as we can put out there and as much as we can put forward we do. We know we need to spend a certain amount of time on on technical infrastructure and tech debt. I mean especially for example our infrastructure team, they're all technical infrastructure and so most of their work isn't directly product affecting. So from those two axes, you know, top down and bottom up and tech debt versus product, we we strike a balance. I mean, the other thing on OKRs too is I don't really take them too seriously. It's not like we we don't we don't base compensation on it. You know, we we don't make it this big thing that's scary if we don't complete them. We're doing it mostly as an exercise and an exercise to align and not as much as a, a thing that we're saying hey, we're going to measure ourselves by us and there's going to be, you know, chaos and fire and brimstone if we don't reach it. Yeah, that's probably the better way to do it. Do you ever uh, set any objectives or kind of define standards around how you work, how your development team works? Some of the things that are coming to mind for me that I see other companies doing are things around like PRs, like how you review PRs or how you comment on PRs or the size of work? Like, do you do anything around how you work as an engineering organization? Yeah, we have a standards guide and, and we have defined some of that, you know, for example, a, a branch should be named a certain 
a certain name and it should have a JIRA ticket in the name. And for reviews, we've mostly done guidance so far and not really written it down. And so I'd say on our, our coding standards, we, we still have a little bit of ways to go for the, you know, how do you review PR and how big PR should be. But we have issued guidance to teams and have a standards kind of document written down on how how we want teams to work. I've intentionally tried to give teams some some leeway and some room on how they decide they want to work. So, you know, while we say you have to work in two week sprints because everyone does and that's just how we plan our work and every project should have at least one epic. We don't necessarily say, well, you have to estimate story points and story points have to be this. Some teams work in more of a, a agile two-week cycle. Other teams actually work more in a Kanban style where they'll do backlog grooming a couple of times a week and they'll pop tickets off of a stack when they're ready to do them. And so you know, we've been careful not to dictate too much. And and I think it's part of being just a smaller company. You don't want to pile on all this process from, from day one in a smaller company, because then it'll be all process and, and no, no delivery. And so we do want to have a bias toward delivery. And so we've, we've kind of introduced high level guidelines and say, you have to do these minimum things, but given a little bit of leeway to work in inside of that. Yeah, totally makes sense. I mean, this is what I've seen. How, how many people are in your engineering organization? So total, our engineering organization, I think we're at about 110 at Hippo. And then the the platform teams were around 50. And then the product engineering is, is maybe 60. So even, you know, at a company your, your size, there's still, you know, a significant amount of engineering teams and they're going to work differently. There's not going to be one way typically that every team works, um, especially if you're giving like that autonomy and authority to each team. And the reason I, I asked the question and kind of thought of it relating to OKRs or goals, um, where I've seen teams kind of improve the way that they can deliver is when they have the conversation around how they work. Not that each team has to work exactly the same, which is not the case. But, you know, if you're a team leader or bringing your team together, I think having the conversation around, well, how do we want to do PR review? Or, you know, what does a good code review look like? Um, one of the things that, you know, I, I always look at at Linear B is like our review time. How long are we having a developer have to wait to get that feedback on the code? So I would just suggest to the audience, even having that conversation is a good start if you are, you know, a, a team leader. I think that's a good point is um, most of our teams who have decided to either work in a Kanban style or, or agile has ha have had the conversation and said, how do we want to work as a team and maybe established at least informally those standards. It's interesting because another metric that I've found that's useful is the review depth as well. And I, I find that the review depth is a measure of quality and that the teams that have deeper reviews, uh, so review depth, at least in my understanding, the definition is how many comments you make on a review, how many rounds of review, and the reviews that have a little more scrutiny tend to lead to higher quality code. And, and those teams seem to have higher quality code. And so that's that's another useful metric to understand where where maybe our quality could be thought of and improved. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was going to even move us on and we'll, we'll talk about review depth here in a second. But, you know, you said that you kind of care about maybe three to four metrics 
you have four golden metrics, if you can remember them. One of them is the review depth. And, you know, what I like a lot about review depth is, I mean, you're, you're doing the review, you're doing the code review, and I kind of look at it from the PR owner standpoint. Can we, you know, per, I'm taking the time, can I provide this person with enough information, comments, advice, learnings, and guidance that that developer can actually improve themselves for next time? Not only to mention that the quality of the code, of course, will be much better, but it's kind of like giving time back to the person that did all that work. And I do see that teams that, you know, do kind of track that review depth or even more importantly, have a little bit of a goal around there seems to kind of bring the team together closer. So review depth was one of your golden metrics. You have, I think, review cycle time, uh, number of PRs per sprint or day and scope to completion. Can you talk to us about each one of these and, and why they're kind of like a, a golden metric for you? Well, I think I scope to completion is the big one because that tells me when is this going to get done? And so if you look at your velocity, you can roughly estimate when a project will actually get done versus when you estimated it. So that's probably the important one, especially because we're, we're all strapped for time and spread thin. And so it's hard to closely track like exactly what our estimate was. But at least if I see the amount of scope left for completion, I, I can make a ballpark estimate on any one project of, of where we're going to get done on that. So the number of PRs per sprint or day, less of an individual thing and, and more of a, a team or collective thing. I, I want to see what teams in terms of code are most and least productive. And, and not only that, but then what are the trends for that? You know, it's it's interesting. You can see, for example, around holidays, it's easy to see the trend for that dropping, and it gives you a good measure and baseline to understand, you know, what it looks like when you do have fewer people working, and also just gives you a, a vote of confidence that you know the metric is working. But I do look at trends, and it's it's mostly when I look at the trend of of how how many PRs were were merging, especially is to understand as we make different changes, you know, our, our leadership likes to experiment with organizational changes and maybe we shift focus and, and work a different way. Being able to see the before and after for this too tells us if, if our experiments might work or not. And then finally, review cycle time and, and depth is, is all about how, how quickly we're turning around reviews and then how much effort are we really spending on, on trying to, to give each other advice and ensure that we have quality in our code. Totally makes sense to me. And of course, some of these metrics, you know, will relate to each other. If you want to look at something like number of PRs per day or per, or per sprint, well, there's a few factors that go into that. One metric that I like to accompany it with is the PR size. If you have very, very large PRs, it's going to be difficult to have a lot of PRs per day actually get uh, merged or go through that review cycle. Because they're too big, right? If you split your work into smaller digestible chunks, you're going to get more and more PRs resolved every sprint or every day. And that review cycle is going to come down. So there's some sometimes these kind of, I don't know, sister metrics that kind of relate to each other that can help you see the the full picture, even though I really like the the four golden ones that you picked out. Yeah. Well, and that's what you're trying to do, really, is just form a picture 
I'm not with every engineer on Zoom watching them write code. So it's hard for me to tell what's going on. And so that's why metrics help kind of form this picture in your head of how our organization is doing. And and that's why I find some of them so valuable. The one other one that I, I see that, you know, we talked about it and you cited, but we'll take a, a minute here. You cited the metric of what percentage of your team is working on different projects as being like very crucial to you. Why is that? Yeah. So lately, now that I've had more ways to to track what we're doing, I've become interested in seeing where is our investment? Like we think we're investing in one way and we may be investing our time a different way. And so it's helping me understand that. And and that's really, if you think about, you know, the first level is of, of managing this is just when is a project going to get done and and can I actually predict that? Once you're kind of past that, you you go into, well, where are we investing? And where should we be investing? And how are we spending our time? And so I'd like to get a little bit more into that over time. And, and that's the beginning of it is seeing, you know, what percentage of people's time is being spent on on each project. So that's kind of the next next level for me to try and figure out. Yeah, su- super important. And, you know, of course, we really appreciate you as a Linear B customer and all the great feedback that you've given us in our project delivery tracker, which is one of those areas that kind of shows you for each project, what percentage of the team is working on that. And yeah, I mean, I think it is one of the, I would add that as a golden metric because that's what you're going to get asked a lot as a VP of engineering, where, where are, you know, you have millions of dollars worth of salaries that are on your team. Where is that money going? Where is the time being spent? And usually I I see that it gets also important if you want to ensure that you're investing in technical debt or a project like that, as well as if you get asked the question, hey, I would, you know, CEO could come to you. I really need us to work on this other project. How can you make it happen, Mike? What is the impact of that? Well, if you don't have that visibility, that's a hard, hard question to answer. Has that ever happened to you before? Yeah, I mean that 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 happens often, not necessarily always the CEO, but it it does happen often where we're asked, you know, can you drop something else and do this? And it's it's hard for us to understand what we could drop without knowing where we're spending our time. Absolutely. It's been awesome having you on the pod today. One last question, a little bit of a fun question. If you had to choose to never use one again, what would it be? Slack or Zoom? Yeah, so I, my my answer would be Zoom for a few reasons. One is that I rely on on Slack and one of the things as as the pandemic's gone on is we've really adapted to the culture of writing things down. And so being able to write things down and have a history and be able to communicate asynchronously, I found to be really useful. I think um I would drop Zoom in favor of being able to meet people in in person and we're starting to go back in a, in a hybrid way, a few days a week. And I've just found that having meetings in person, you can, well, first of all, with Zoom, you have to find a time to schedule and then it defaults to 30 minutes. And to have a really quick conversation, it's it's just taking so long to figure that out. And where you're meeting in person, you could have three or four people in a room. And because there's no delay between speaking, it's just so easy to to convey information between each other and, and come to an agreement or come to an understanding compared to being on Zoom. So I think it'd be hard to live without Slack. It'd be easier to, to live without Zoom. 
makes sense to me what I've seen. The world is all about balance. At first, everyone was super excited to go remote, maybe get some time back. But now the pendulum's coming back to the middle a little bit and saying, oh, I really <laughs> miss, especially for engineering teams that are creators and creating, you know, amazing projects. Let's get back in the room together and do that. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks for playing along there, Mike. And we do like to give, you know, an opportunity to kind of like promote something. I know that you have an incredible engineering team and you do have some roles open at Hippo. If one of our listeners is interested in joining the Hippo team, what, what's available and where could they go? We're specifically looking for, for backend engineers, data engineers, and technical product managers. And so you could go to hippo.com slash careers to, to see what jobs we have available. And we have a, a great team and lots of interesting work to do. And we're doing great things in, in the home insurance industry as well. We're, we're modernizing home insurance and, and really making it a much better experience than it used to be and much faster and more online and more enjoyable. And Hippo's participating in helping homeowners to be able to manage their homes. So there, there's lots of interesting problems to solve and, and we are continuing to look for engineers to grow our team. Awesome. Everyone definitely check out the career pages at Hippo, especially if you want to join Mike's team, which I know personally is an incredible engineering organization. Anything that we talked about today will be in link form in the description below. See everyone next week. And Mike, thanks again for coming on the pod. It was awesome having you. Thanks for having me.